0: Alrighty, we didn't quite get through what I wanted to get through last week and it was a section that the Apostle Paul uh, began with that was based on the picture that's painted uh, in baptism. You remember how that um, the two words that we have here in the text, the idea of putting off and putting on, he mentions them more than uh, uh, twice here in the text. And it's supposed to to paint a picture of what happens at baptism. And I told you about the old tradition, and I don't know if it's true or not, that this word picture is supposed to paint how that before a person was baptized, they would put on uh, grave clothes, what was uh, wrapped up in grave clothes. And then they would go down into the watery grave of baptism. Uh, They would come out of uh, baptism and take off those grave clothes because they were no longer dead, and they put on a white robe. And um, that was the beginning of their Christian walk. And um, these are things that should have happened at baptism, when the old man died, so therefore these things are put off, and then when you became a new creature in Jesus Christ, these are the things that you put on. And we spent our time um, last week, after beginning at verse 8, where it says, but now you also put off these, and it names a number of different things, anger, wrath, malice, blaspheming, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. And then he says, and have put on the new man. This is what happens after you come out of the watery grave of baptism, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And then, of course, we made the point in verse 11 that shows the equality of what's going on here and why we should not have any of these terrible things coming out of our mouth. Uh, How there's neither Jew nor Greek, or neither Greek nor Jew, uh, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian. Uh, Bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And that's where we stopped um, last week. But Paul continues with this idea of putting on. Uh, Once again, it's the picture of what happens after baptism. Uh, When the old man of sin dies, there's some things that should die with it. But once we come out of the water grave of baptism, there's some things that we should be adding to our life. But he does something a little bit unusual here and almost looks out of place unless you understand perhaps why he is doing it. But he says, before telling us what to put on, um, after telling us what to put off, he says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. King James says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Now, why do you think he felt maybe it was necessary to stick this in here. He's giving us a description of the things we, that died at baptism, and he, he talked about moral issues earlier, and then he talked about uh, mouthy issues after that, make it all alliterate. Uh, and now he's telling us that we should put on um, certain things, and then right in the middle of the putting on things, he stops and kind of makes it almost as a, a side note, but he wants to make sure that we understand this. Why do you think he did that? <clears throat> I am not can't read his mind, but I've got an idea maybe why he did it. Look what he's done. He's telling us to put on some things, but before he tells us to put on some things, he reminds us, first of all, that we're the elect of God. Secondly, that we're holy and that we're loved. Let me ask you again. Why would he do that? Okay. We're different from everybody else. Um Go one verse above that, too, where he said, put on. He tells us to do something before we can, when we put on the new man, there's something that's happening all the time, and this is going to help us to do these other things. What? Become more like Christ, and we do that because we're renewed in the knowledge after the image of him. What is the renewing of the knowledge he wants us to understand? Well, I think he gives us a clue right here in this verse. He wants to, we need to be constantly reminded that we are the chosen people of God. That's what elect means there. It means you're chosen, okay? That we're holy. We have been made holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're set apart, sanctified is another word we can use that. Or the reason why Christians are called saints, because we have been made holy. Hagios is the same word. And we're loved, all right? Why is it important that we have that knowledge renewed all the time that we're, in, that we're now in the image of Christ? Well, think about if you're like me, and you start reading through these things, and, and to be honest with you, some of this came out of the class last Wednesday night. Uh, some people started feeling guilty because if, if I'm honest with myself, and you're honest with yourself, there's been some times we've gotten angry when we shouldn't got angry. Uh, there's been some times that maybe we've said some things that we shouldn't have said. Maybe there are times when we don't really put off the old man with his deeds as we should have. And then as we move into this next session, section and he's telling us that we need to put on kindness and humbleness of mind and meekness and long-suffering and forbearing, we don't always get that right either. And so we almost have here uh, a little good way to put it other than grace relief. So every day, every day you renew the knowledge that you're being made after the image of Jesus Christ. And the process of that is the fact that you need to remind yourself every day that, first of all, you have been chosen by God. The same idea and the word behind here is the word that was used for the Israelites. In fact, every single word here, uh, chosen, uh, holy, or sanctified, and beloved, can all apply to the chosen people of, of Israel. Now we're God's chosen people is the idea behind it. And you need to remind yourself every day you have been made sanctified, hagios, holy. And how is that done? It's Done by the blood of Jesus Christ. And every single day we need to be reminded that God loves me. God loves me. He loves me in spite of myself. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And that is the impetus as we continue as as dear brother Rudolph said here as we keep removing those old things of of the old man and we keep adding the things of the new man we understand that that's part of that process. We're always reminded ourselves that we have been chosen by God. We've been sanctified by God and we're loved by God. And so it's almost like Paul, as I said, put in here a, a, a grace relief section to remind you that you're not on your own when it all comes to this, that you have help with this, and that God is behind you, and God is forgiving you in those days when you messed up. And um, just to keep pushing on is a good way uh, to, to say it. Uh, another way people have said it sounds almost trite now, but let go and let God. Let Him be the one. Yes. It's always a good idea at the beginning of every year to do what we call spiritual inventory. And look back, as you said, very good idea. Because if we're stagnant, then something is wrong. There's something that we need to be working on. Good comments. Anything else? Okay. Well, let's look at some of the things that he tells us that we need to have. What we need to be putting on. Uh, When we come out of the watery grave of baptism... Here's some things that we, as we dawn this new outfit, if you will, here's some things we're putting on. And the first thing he mentions uh, in the King James, the way it's described, is bowels of mercy, bowels of mercy. I'm sure somebody has something different than bowels of mercy. Tender mercy, do you have bowels there too? Um, What I'm trying to get is somebody that has a translation to explain why it says bowels of mercy. I mean, I know why it does, but I want us to hear it from another translation. Anybody got anything other than bowels there? What you got? Compassionate Compassionate heart. There you go. And we've talked about this before. The Greek way of thinking, they thought the center of the emotions was the bowels. We think of the center of the emotion being the heart. though, folks... There's nothing in this thing that's pumping there that has any emotion in it, more so than the Greeks thinking that the intestines and whatnot was the center of of emotion. Emotion is all up here, how we think. But the point is that, you know, from the very core of who you are, whether you describe it as your heart or describe it as your bowels or describe it as your mind, at the very core of who you are, the beginning point that you need to put on is to be someone who is compassionate, someone who has mercy. Now, why in the world bring that up first? All right, that's true, but think about what he's just talked about. If we truly thought about what he just talked about, what's the first thing that should have popped in our heads? All right, our mercy. Mercy is getting something that, I mean, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is getting something that you do deserve. And as he starts talking about these different things here and the way that we're supposed to treat people, at the beginning point is we need to understand as we talk to other people and deal with other people in the world today, um, we need to treat people with the attitude, I'm not giving them what they deserve. I'm doing this because I'm doing this. Sometimes we may treat somebody different because they deserve to be treated good. Or we may treat somebody different because they deserve to be treated bad. Well, if God treated us the way that we deserve to be treated, there's no way in the world we could have had those first couple of words there uh, where it says that we have been uh, chosen, that we have been sanctified, that we have been beloved. So the beginning point of all this, as we start looking at these different things, like the next one about being kind. Well, he doesn't deserve for me to be kind to him. He's just a hateful person. Well, you're not giving him what he deserves. You're giving him what he needs and what you've been commanded to do. In other words, everything we're looking at here is not dependent upon the other person. It's dependent upon me. And it starts with the core value coming from the bowels or the heart of the mind or whatever you want to say, of the idea of mercy. Giving someone not what they deserve. Because that's what God has done for us. And, of course, he goes on. And the very next thing, as we've already mentioned, he talks about the word kindness. And I think all of us understand what it means to be kind to someone. Uh, earlier he had told us to put off being uh, uh, any kind of malice. Malice is trying to be ugly somebody to somebody or hurt somebody just for the sake of hurting them. Well, kindness is being good to somebody just for the sake of being good to them. And so kindness I think we all understand. We don't need to have a big theological uh, understanding of this. But what about humbleness of mind, it says in the King James this is the next one. Humbleness of mind, and then right beside it is the word meekness. So he doesn't repeat himself here. So there's two different things happening here. So somebody has a different translation. Read the, let me hear the, the two words you have after kindness humility, gentleness. Okay? Um, that pretty much sums it up. Anybody have anything different? The what? And patience, that comes in just a little bit. All right, let's think. Go ahead, Bobby. Meekness, okay. All right, let's look at these for a few minutes. Humbleness of mind deals with the idea of being humble and realize who you are. That's what humbleness means. Humbleness is understanding your place, okay? Um, Where is the first thing that we need to understand Where our place should be. In the grand scheme of things, all right, but what makes you know you're a sinner compared to God? We need to understand that God is the creator and we're the creation. God is holy, I'm not, as you mentioned. Um, We need to understand that we have a proper place in now that we are put on this new man. And that proper place understands that we are someone who is underneath God, maybe is a good way to put it. Um, it's the idea that uh, I'm just like every other person, too. He mentioned earlier that there's neither Greek nor Jew nor circumcision or uncircumcision and it goes on down the list. That's brought out again because of what he's telling us here about being humble. Um, this is a hard thing to fight, but you know what? Underneath God, who's our ultimate person we should be humble under, when we make a comparison to every single other person in the world today, there's no difference. That's what humbleness is. I'm not better than anybody else. Now, I may look at somebody and say, well, I'm better off than he is because he does that and I don't do that. Or some other thing like that. But the whole point of humbleness is realizing we're all the same. And... I'm no better than anybody else, but here's a kicker that you need to add to it. I'm not a better Christian than another Christian. Because if a person is a Christian, they're a Christian. And we need to understand that because this was one of the problems they were dealing with there. Uh, in Colossae, as far as the Gnostics were concerned, they were making a hierarchy of Christians as far as super-Christians, next in line, next in line, and next in line. Folks, that's not the way Christianity works. And sometimes we look at another person and... and We say, well, I'm a better Christian than they are. Well, right there you messed up because you just violated what it said to do there. We need to be humble and realize under God's eyes who we really are. And that gives us the right, or not the right, to place ourselves above any other Christian. Now, there may be some things you do better than other people. There may be some obvious flaws in a person's character as they live the Christian life. But that does not get give us the right to think ourselves more highly than another is the point that's being made. Yes. Absolutely. And um, I knew this before I came over here, but there's a passage where Paul says, let no man esteem himself above another. And that's the same idea that's right here. Uh, Any other comments? Yes. All right, let's look at the next thing. The King James has meekness. Um, Literally in the Greek, it's the idea of gentleness. Well, gentleness really doesn't cover... Uh, the word very well, we understand what it means to be gentle, that we, you know, we want to be harsh to people. But this word in the Greek is a weird word. Um, it can describe a soothing wind. Um, it's a word they, they can describe as, as a healing medicine. Um, it's a word that can be described as a tamed horse. Okay? if they, This is a word, if a horse had been broken... A powerful steed had been broken. The word here would be the word they would use, meaning that horse is now broken. So taking these Greek word pictures, see if we kind of figure out what's uh, going on here. Um, a soothing wind is something that's very pleasant. But wind in and of itself, what can it do? It can destroy. It can be ferocious and awful. Um, medicine given to cure someone... A healing medicine is something that's wonderful because of the power of that medicine. But what can that same medicine do? It can kill you if you take too much of it or if you abuse it, as we have in this country today. Um, the best picture, probably, I and mean, this is where it's used the most, is the idea of an animal that has been broken, an animal that's powerful and ferocious, a horse, for example, that could stomp you to death, but you've now tamed it and you have that power Under control. And that's the actual definition of the Greek word when it comes to gentleness. It's the idea of power under control. You've taken something that maybe you have the ability and the power to do, but you've got it under control. That's what gentleness is. Um, Maybe another way to illustrate this. Um, Maybe... um, Mike has the power to come over here and slap me silly. But because of I was pointing at that Mike. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I usually call him Michael. But anyway. But uh but he's using a lot of gentleness right now that he doesn't do that. Well, he has no reason to do that. But there may be some times in life that we might have the reason to just slap somebody silly out of anger or out of jealousy, or whatever the case may be. We're not talking about defending yourself here. We're talking about uh, an outburst. And he's already talked about mercy and then kindness, and we need to remember our place in the grand scheme of things, and that should lead us to be the kind of people who are meek or gentle. That's what he's continued. Flo, did I see your hand up? Absolutely. It would be very easy for us to be high and mighty and um, take a... Uh, a righteous indignation, and say, we've got it all figured out, and all that does is scare people away. And we need to always be reminded that, um, except for by the grace of God, there goes me. We need to always be reminded about how the the situation could be reversed and be thankful that that our life is the way that it is now. But um, very good point. But then he goes on to add something to this that fits in this once again. He uses the word long-suffering. And uh, once again, it's the idea uh, of not only being patient, but the actual word in the Greek car- carries with it having long temper or long-tempered. Now, that sounds like an odd thing, first of all, because who would want to be have a long temper? That means I'm mad all the time. No, that means that, that your temper is willing to be long-suffering, um, It's a long time coming. There you go. But it carries obviously with it the idea of patience. If we are people who are merciful, people who are kind, people who are humble, people who are gentle, we're going to be people who are patient. Because in order to be patient, you have to be all those other things first. Because that's where patience comes from. And so he goes on and says, forbearing one another. And forbearing is an unusual word. Uh, We use it in one way, but the actual idea behind the original word is to hold back. Forbearing means to hold back. And so if we're forbearing, that means we're putting up with somebody. And then that word means, forbearing means to forbear someone. means to deal with someone, put up with them. And so in a real literal way, what are you doing? I'm holding back. There's maybe some things I want to say, but I'm holding back. There's maybe somebody I want to slap silly, Mike, Um, but I'm holding back. (laughs) And the reason why I'm holding back is because I'm merciful, I'm kind. And the text goes on and he says, and I'm humble and I'm gentle and I've got patience. And because of those things, I can hold back now. And that's the idea. And because of that also, he goes on and says, after forbearing one another and forgiving one another. We as Christians especially need to be very forgiving people. And Why should we be very forgiving people? Why, Chris? And he has to forgive us a whole lot more than we've got to forgive other people, right? And so if that's the case, he goes on. This is not hard to figure out. He says, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. There, it's all tied in together. Jesus Christ forgave us. If you have something that's against someone, the uh, King James has the word quarrel. What somebody else have? That's almost not a good word there. It makes it sound like we're having a big fight with somebody. A complaint. That's better. That's a better word. Because a quarrel sounds like you're going at it with each other. But this is, the word itself carries the idea if you have something against someone. A grievance. There you go. And so that's good. But then he ties it all together in verse 14. And above all these things put on, King James has charity, the word is love, it's agape. And above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. All right, the word there is agape. And so what is agape kind of love? All right, goodwill. True agape love is a kind of love that puts the other person's interests before yours. You do what's best for them instead of what's best for you. And that's a very special kind of love because, you know, it's a love that doesn't demand anything in return. And he goes on and says that this love is the thing that is the bond of perfectness. What else does somebody have besides bond of perfectness? There. That's a good way to put it. This is what binds it all together. This is the glue that holds the mercy, the kindness, the forgiveness, everything in here. It's all based on the idea of love. If we were really agape other people, always put their best interest first before ours, the kind of God, the love that God had for mankind, that he put their interest above his interest and gave us his only begotten son... That's the kind of thing that will cause all this to fall into place. But then he adds something else to it. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, you lose something here, and I don't care in what translation you have, but rule in your hearts. What does that mean? How can you have the peace of God ruling in your heart? This word for rule here, in the Greek, is an unusual word. It's a word that's an athletic word. And the best word we can use to describe it, because if we say the word judge, it doesn't sound right in our day and age when it comes to sporting events. But a good word we can use right here is the word umpire. Okay? That's the closest we can get to it. But it goes back to when Paul during the the kind of athletic events they had. They had a man that was in charge to make sure that everything worked out right as far as the game of play. Does that make sense? All right. So how in the world can we let the peace of God be the umpire in our hearts? We should want in our hearts an umpire, or if you will, someone in charge that's going to make sure that things are done the right kind of way That makes sure the things are done the right kind of way to make peace always. Yeah, that's what you said. I I was just amplifying it. Just amplifying it. What will make peace? Instead of saying what will keep things going, what will make peace? I want to get my way, but what will make peace? I want to make sure they get what they deserve, but what will make peace? Well, it's unfair what they did to me. Well, what will make peace? What can bring a peaceful resolution to everything? Does it mean I might have to eat some crow? It might. Does it mean somebody might get away with something in the way they treated me? It might. But what's the best way to make peace? Let peace be the umpire or the ruling thing in your life that says I'm always going to try to do what I can to make peace. And and what you're saying there, just to add to it, you're saying it was very one-sided when it came to God and us as concerned. Who, who did everything? God did. And that's the idea. Uh, when we studied the book of Philippians a while back, uh, and Karen's already brought this out, when Christ humbled himself and became of no reputation and became as a man. Um, that whole section of Scripture, we sometimes forget it, is dealing with our relationship with other people and how we are willing should be willing to also sacrifice ourselves. For other people. (laughs) Let's let's move on. Good comments. It says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also ye are called, reminding ourselves that we are part of the called. Um, We are the ecclesia of the church. In one body, we're all members of one body, and be ye thankful. Now that almost seems out of place, but might kind of hit it, because be ye thankful um, shoots back up to verse 13. You see what I'm driving at? Even as Christ also forgave, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Therefore, in all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let the peace of God rule in your heart, to the to which ye are also called in one body, and be ye thankful. The impetus behind this is the fact that we need to be thankful for everything that God has done for us. And if we truly are appreciative of what God has done for us, we should be willing to show this to other people. So it all begins with mercy, and the ultimate conclusion is peace. Because we're all part of one body, the called. But then he goes on and and adds something else. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom. And um, the word of Christ is of course is the word of God. It's the commandments and the teachings and everything that goes along. What's taught in the scriptures. And it says that that needs to dwell in us. The word dwell there is an interesting word. Um, We think of a home being a dwelling. As a place where people live. So this is obviously um, God... Paul wants us to have the Word of God living in us. But it carries with it even more than that. It's the idea of dwelling comfortably or feel at home. Um, In my lifetime, I've had the opportunity. I've got to do so many gospel meetings. I can't remember how many I've done. And sometimes they'll call me before I go to a place to hold a gospel meeting. And they'll ask me, do you prefer to stay with one of the members or do you prefer to stay in the motel? I always say motel. I appreciate the goodness and the kindness of brothers and sisters in Christ who want to put me up in their house. But I tell you what, the whole time I'm there, I'm never comfortable. I never feel at home because I've always felt so much like a guest. I'm scared to take my shoes off. I'm scared to do something. I'm scared to, I, can't, I just don't know what to do with myself. Sometimes I just sit there and don't move uh, because I don't know what to do. But in a motel, I can feel at home because if I want to, I uh, lie on the bed in my underwear and watch TV, I can or whatever. If I want to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and just have it all over my face, I can. But if I'm staying with somebody, I almost feel like i got to come out of the bedroom wearing my suit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, here's the idea behind this word. The word of God is so a part of our lives that it feels at home. It doesn't feel like a stranger. It feels like it ought to be there. And that's the idea of the word, uh, the word of Christ dwelling in you. You are so comfortable with the Word of God that it feels at home in your body. It doesn't feel awkward. It's something that just flows out of you because it's so much a part of you. And that don't mean you've got to know every book, chapter, and verse or be able to quote a bunch of Scripture. But yet at the same time, the teachings are there. They, they feel at home with you because you're, you're, you have an understanding of them. But then he goes on, and it almost seems like it's out of place where he's put it because of everything that he's talked about. He's talking about letting the Word of God feel at home in you uh, richly in all wisdom. And, of course, he's making a, a cut there at the um, Gnostics that all the wisdom you need is, is going to be from the Word of God. But then he goes on and says, like I said, almost uh, something unusual. He says, let the word of Christ fill at home in you richly or abundantly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Why, when he says, you want the word of God to dwell in you abundantly, does he tell us to teach one another by singing? All right, first of all, let's look at it this way. We need to understand that when we sing praises to God, that not only do we have the vertical thing going on with our voices going up to God and praise to Him and adoration to Him as we've been commanded to do, but there's also a vertical thing that happens. The songs that we sing have messages in them. The songs that we sing teach us things. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That is telling the person sitting next to me, I need to have that same assurance. Or, um, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given for me? That reminds us that Christ sacrificed for us, we need to sacrifice for him. But we also, there's another byproduct of this in the fact that the easiest way to learn is by singing. You ever thought about that? When we really needed to learn something, oftentimes our parents would try to teach us a song, didn't they? And we even do that today. Um, there are songs in our songbook that we know by heart. That we don't always think about it this way. We know them by heart, but guess what? We know the words of those songs by heart too. And if we pay attention to the words of those songs, we have some scripture dwelling in us. For example, if I told you, I don't know why this microphone keeps going in and out, because I can tell it is. That's because the battery just died. I'm gonna go get me a battery real quick. Uh, If you can hear it up, I can hear it over here. It goes in, it goes out, it goes in, it goes out. But anyway, I'll keep talking while he gets the battery. It's still working. Um, But think about this. Um, Who can quote Galatians 2.20 for me? All right? Why can you think, before you quote it, why do you think you can quote it? Because of the song. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Well, if you know that song, guess what? You can quote Galatians 2.20 because that's just the Scripture. Okay? Now, the reason why you know that scripture is because you know that song. So the whole idea is that, you know, when we sing to one another, we're not only singing praises to God, but we're teaching and admonishing one another by the words that we sing. And sometimes those words stick in your head better than the preacher getting up and preaching. Because there's repetition. There's a melody that goes along with it. There's the idea that you're hearing not just one person up in the pulpit saying it, but you're hearing everybody sing it. And so that's why this verse is so important. And of course, we could spend a lot of time on the idea that the Bible commands us to sing here and talk about why we don't use instruments and music, but that's for a different lesson and a different time. And if you need some more information on that, I'd love to talk to you about that and explain it to you better. One thing that often comes up in this particular verse is that why Paul uses the word psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Why couldn't he just say, sing songs? Well... There's a reason why he used different words here. Um, The word psalms is psalms. And that stands for any kind of song that's a scripture song. Um, It can be, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a song we sing. That's a psalm song. Galatians 2.20 that Karen just mentioned, that's a psalm song. It's any song that is based upon Scripture. And we should always try to have songs that are based on Scripture because the whole purpose of singing is teaching and admonishing one another, and that's the Scripture. We want the Word of God to dwell in us. I love some of our modern songs, but, and they're pretty, but sometimes those songs have no knowledgeable stuff in it other than repetition of God is great. I'm being facetious here, but we need to be careful that we don't get too caught up in certain songs that really don't teach anything. Because the purpose of our singing is to teach one another. Hymns are classified... Oh, we're running out of time. Hymns are classified as songs that are written by people, okay? For the purpose of giving us edification and growing. Uh, they're not taken directly from Scripture. They're taken from someone's mind. Um, Blessed be the tie that binds. That was written by somebody who wants to remind us of the closeness we have as Christians. Um, There's ideas of that in Scripture, but that exact phraseology is not there. But instead, uh, someone who is a composer came up with that. We're allowed to sing those. And then the idea of spiritual songs are spiritual songs that deal specifically with songs we sing to build up other people, to make us more spiritual. Um, It's the songs that are exhortation uh, songs like uh, Send the Light, Send the Light. Uh, it's the idea of telling us to do something. So Paul is covering all the different aspects. He's covering scriptural songs. He's covering songs that other people have wrote that deals with scripture. And he also deals with songs that make us more spiritual as far as um, building us up and encouraging us. But then, so i gonna go ahead and finish out the, this text here. He says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Grace is a word that can be translated there because it is the word charis, which we get the word grace from. But the idea and the context here in the Greek is the idea of being thankful. And I don't know if anybody has thankful in their text or not. You do, Eric? Okay. it's the idea, he's continuing in this thought of why we were thankful in verse 15. We also need to be thankful in verse 16. And we're going to find out that we're going to be thankful in verse 17. Because it all shoots back up to verse 13. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So why am I going to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly? Because of what Christ has done for me. Why am I going to sing and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in my hearts to the Lord because of what God has done for me? And we have got to stop.